Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual things. Thanks for joining us today. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. It is written in Psalm 106 and in verse 23. Therefore God said that he would destroy Israel, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. It is also written in Ezekiel chapter 22 and in verse 30. And I sought for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord Yahweh. So today let's consider this interesting picture here. Uh, the one who stands in the breach. What does it mean to stand in a breach? Well, an ancient city, which existed before the uh, development of cannon fire, would have defensive walls as its primary means of protection and defense. An attacking army would besiege the city and attempt to make a breach, a gap in the wall, uh, to compromise the integrity of that defense and be able to thus enter the town and to capture it. So in 1 Kings 11 and verse 27, Solomon repaired the part of the wall of the city of David that had a breach in it. Uh, in 2 Kings 25.4 and Jeremiah 39.2 and 52.7, uh, during the siege of Jerusalem, uh, the authors note that the Babylonians finally made a breach in the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, and it led to the end of the siege and the destruction of the city. It's worth noting in, in those accounts that when the wall, the breach is made, most of the strong warriors flee because uh, they know that the city's defense has been compromised. And so now it's every man for themselves. In Nehemiah 6 and verse 1, Nehemiah made sure to go around the whole wall and make sure that they completed the walls of Jerusalem so there was no breach in it. And so a breach is an opening in which an enemy could attack or penetrate. In Job 16, 14, and 30, 14, Job will speak of his suffering in terms of having breach upon breach upon him, uh, or as enemies flowing through a breach. There's a very evocative image there of, of great suffering. Isaiah 30, and verse 13, uh, Israel's transgression is like a breach in a high wall, and thus it will lead to its collapse. In Isaiah 58 and verse 12, there's a great legacy for those Israelites who would come back to trust in Yahweh. They'd be known as repairers of the breach, among other things. In Micah 2 and verse 13, Micah envisions a great army with the one who opens a breach in the wall at its head. That's the first guy up there, so he can pound through the wall and others can follow after him. And so to stand in the breach is to put yourself in a place of great danger. It means to maintain the integrity of defense after that defense has been compromised. Um, and to be honest, most people in the ancient world would be like those, those Jerusalemites that ran away um, once the wall was compromised, even though they had fought uh, hard and strongly while the wall had been intact. Because... A town whose wall was breached, well, at some point the enemy is going to just send all of their forces to that. And so if you're standing in that breach when the enemy sends his full force, it means it's almost certain death. 
you're going to deal with the full force. Uh, and so you are definitely sacrificing your life there to, to attempt to maintain the integrity of the defense of the town for one last final gasp. Um, thinking in maybe, just maybe, if enough men stand in the breach, that maybe you could hold off the, ar the invading army and to inflict a defeat upon them. Um, although the evidence of success of that is, is very uh, slim. However, it's very clear that it's a very dangerous position to be in. It requires selfless courage and devotion to one's people. And it's a very powerful attempt to maintain the integrity of defense after the primary means of defense, the wall, has been compromised. So what's going on here in Psalm 106 in terms of talking about Moses here? Well, when we look at the whole context, we understand what the psalmist is talking about. Beginning in verse 19, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot their God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses' chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying him. And so we can understand that the psalmist is going back to the events in the book of Exodus, in chapter uh, 32. In Exodus 32, uh, Moses has been up on the mountain for a long time, getting all of the different commands that will make up the law uh, of Moses, which was delivered by Yahweh. And so we're told that uh, the people uh, told themselves, Up, make us gods who shall go before us, as... For this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so they command Aaron then to make this uh, god to go before him. And so he takes all the gold from them and he fashions this golden calf. And they all uh, eat and drink and uh, rise up to play, we're told in verse 6. And then we're told in verse 7, And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that I may, my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So notice the, the thing that the situation that Moses now finds himself. Notice all of a sudden that God has turned your people, whom you have led out of Egypt. And uh, he, he then gives this exhortation, let, my, let me burn my anger hot against them. Let me destroy them and I can make a great nation out of you. Now you think about that for a second there. Um, Moses has all kinds of reasons to step aside and let Yahweh destroy Israel. Because, uh, first of all, Yahweh speaking, Moses is well aware who has all the power here. And uh, Moses could have asked himself, who am I to get in the way of Yahweh doing his thing, right? Uh, he would personally benefit. We wouldn't be talking about the nation of Israel if he had stepped aside. We'd talk about the nation of Moses. And, after all, the people had sinned a great sin. Didn't they deserve it? Didn't they deserve this punishment and this condemnation? But yet, what does Moses say? Moses implored Yahweh his God and said, Oh Yahweh, why does your wrath burn against uh, your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? 
Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Until Yahweh relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing upon his people. The people didn't get away scot-free. Moses would go down and censure the people. Plague would break out before them. Thousands would die uh, at the hands of the plague and at the hand of the sword. Um, but they were not entirely destroyed in verses 15 through 35 of that chapter. But we see here why the psalmist does well at saying that Moses stood in the breach. Israel had sinned grievously, and so their integrity before God had been greatly compromised. But Moses loved his people. Even though they were recalcitrant, even though they were broken, even though they were sinful, even though they were not excited about his leadership all the time, and he has every reason to remember when they said, who made you a judge or ruler over us back in uh, the second chapter? And all the murmuring he's already had to endure. But Moses doesn't just love his people. He also loves Yahweh. And that's why he reminds Yahweh, Don't, what are you doing? You're going to let the Israelite, the Israel, Egyptians say, ah, you led the people out with evil intent. Are you going to forget your covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, he loves Yahweh and wants to see that consistency on the part of Yahweh. And so Moses took the risk on. Moses absorbed that risk, standing in the breach uh, made in Israel's integrity, stood before God, reminded God of his covenant loyalty, and God relented of that disaster. And thus Israel was preserved. Now, when we go to Ezekiel, we have uh, a similar circumstance that spans a very different time period. In Ezekiel chapter 22, Yahweh has summoned Ezekiel to judge the bloody city in verse 1. And therefore, he's supposed to cry out about all of the Abominations. Thus says Lord Yahweh, a city that sheds blood in her midst so that her time may come and that makes idols to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made and you have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. Behold, you are full of tumult." Behold, the princes of Israel in you, every one according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood, and people in you who eat on the mountains. They commit lewdness in your midst. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord Yahweh. So we can see there all of these charges. And even if we leave some room for hyperbole, there's a lot of iniquity going on. Again, the integrity of Israel before its God has been compromised. 
And so that is why in verses 13 through 16, there's a sharp judgment that Yahweh is going to provide against them. He will consume all of that uncleanness. And Israel is as dross in verses 17 through 22, that uh, to be purged from pure metal in the fire, to be cast out in the wrath of God. And... We're told in verses 23 through 29 that the prophets conspire, do not speak the truth, the priests profane the holy things of Yahweh, the princes destroy people to obtain blood, the pe- wealth, excuse me, the land, people of the land extort and exploit the poor and the sojourners. So all of that's what's going on. It's awful. Terrible things. Yahweh stands ready to pour out his anger on them and destroy them. And so what happens at that moment? He again, he sought a man among them who would stand in the wall and stand in the breach before me in the land that I may not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord Yahweh. He was looking for another man like Moses, somebody who would stand in the breach. Because let's be clear, the connections of the imagery between Psalm 106, 23, and Ezekiel 22, 30 are just too compelling to be coincidental. Yahweh is looking for somebody to come and reason with him, to find that Moses-like figure who loves Yahweh and loves the people Israel and is willing to stand up to preserve Israel by appealing to Yahweh's sense of covenant loyalty and the standing among the nations. This word from Yahweh doesn't come out of nowhere. And so, Yahweh, through Ezekiel, is deliberately describing Israel's condition leading up to 586 and the destruction of Jerusalem in terms of Israel in the wilderness. But where Moses stood in the breach in the wilderness, by the 6th century, no one was found who would do so. Because no one stood in the breach. No one encouraged Yahweh to turn aside from his hot anger. His hot anger was poured out upon his people. And they met their end in pestilence, in plague, and by the sword, or by exile. And thus we see the great value and importance of having someone who would stand in the breach. So who can truly stand in the breach between God and his people? Moses pointed him the way himself, because he spoke of the one who would be a prophet like him, that Israel should listen to, in Deuteronomy 18, 18-19. And it's Jesus of Nazareth, who proves uniquely suited to stand in that breach. We're told that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God in John 1, 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in verse 18. So Jesus is fully God and fully man. In Matthew 22, 37, 38, 26, 39, Jesus establishes that the greatest command is to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And he did that himself. He sought God's will in all things. Uh, Father, let this cup not uh, pass from me, excuse me, but yet not my will, but your will be done. But as John testifies in John 13, verse 1, uh, that Jesus loved those who were given to him in the world, and he loved them until the end. Jesus stood in the breach by living a sinless life, but then he died for our sins, allowing him to stand as our mediator and intercessor. And so Jesus learned obedience to the things that he suffered, according to the Hebrews author in Hebrews 5, 8 through 9, that he's a suitable high priest because he is able to identify with us in our weakness, but he did it without sin in Hebrews 4, and verse 15. Jesus sees Israel, and in fact all mankind, as having sinned. Therefore, its integrity is compromised. It cannot stand before God. And the day is coming when uh, God's hot anger will burn against all people and will come against them. But he stands in the breach. 
absorbing the full force of evil, pain, sin, suffering, and is able to overcome in his death and resurrection, Romans 3 and 5 and 8. So Jesus, who is fully human and fully God, is our mediator, who stands between us and God, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. And in this way, all the promises that God made has found their fulfillment in Jesus, Luke 24, 44. And so Jesus is the one who triumphed over the powers and principalities. And it's through Jesus that God has manifested his wisdom in the church uh, before those powers and principalities in Ephesians 3, 10 and 11 and Colossians 2 and verse 15. And therefore, thanks be to God that Jesus proved willing to stand in that breach, to live, suffer, and die, and through his death and resurrection provide salvation for those who would trust in him. So yes, indeed, Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of the one who would stand the breach. But that doesn't mean that there ought not be anybody else among God's people who would stand in that breach for the benefit of God's people. Now, in our highly individualistic, atomized world, we tend to value the individual over the group or the collective. And we kind of wonder if an individual even has any responsibility for the collective. You know, if I'm responsible for me and what I've done, who am I to say I'm responsible for what other people have done? But hey, yeah, that's, there's a sense in which that's true because Scripture speaks of personal autonomy. We're going to be judged by God on the basis of what we have done in the body. And Romans 2, 5 through 11, Romans 14, 11 through 12, many other passages. We're not directly responsible for the behavior of others. And yet, throughout the New Testament, and definitely in our practice, we see the value of intercession, to seek to make petitions to God on behalf of others. There's some who deny that Christians have an intercessory role. But the fact that we continue to pray for one another and the testimony in 1 Timothy 2, in which Paul says that he urges that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, um, would testify that, in fact, 2 Timothy 2 there, uh, intercession does have its place and its role. And we... When we pray for the needs of others, that's intercession. We're praying bef between, you know, we're, we're standing there between God and that person in a spiritual sense, uh, petitioning God on their behalf. Um, Daniel and Ezra, and Daniel 9 and Ezra 9, are notable because they make intercessory prayers on behalf of the people and their iniquity, and they own it for themselves. We have sinned. We have done all these wrong things. Even though the ones really responsible are their ancestors or other people, not they themselves. Uh, Moses spoke with Yahweh, and he made intercession, as we saw uh, from Psalm 106 and Exodus 32. In John 17, Jesus has this whole prayer, which is about the apostles and about those who would believe uh, in Jesus through the word of the apostles, i.e. us Christians. And so that's another intercessory prayer in its nature. And so there is still a place among the people of God for those who would stand in the breach, who would stand before God with integrity, love, and service, even when the integrity of the people of God has been compromised. And that's why we need to be really clear about the nature of standing in the breach here. Uh, the ones who stand in the breach are standing before God. In, in, in these images, God is the enemy that would ravage the people. The wall that has been breached is the faithful integrity of the people of God. They have sinned. There is no excuse or justification for their sin. They deserve punishment. And yet the one who stands in the breach stands there anyway. And the one who would stand in the breach has all sorts of reasons not to. 
he could or she could just let the people of God suffer what they deserve uh, for their iniquity. Uh, he or she might gain personally if such destruction were to be unleashed on others. But the one who stands in the breach loves God and the people of God. And he loves or she loves both enough to stand in that compromised position, a position full of danger, interceding for the salvation of God's people. And the question comes to us, would we be willing to be the ones who stand in the breach? Do we feel that people are still worth praying for and worth saving, even though they prove recalcitrant, rebellious, perhaps don't even think that well of us? Do we love God enough to challenge him to be faithful to covenant and to not allow his name to be blasphemed among the Gentiles? If we believe it or not, he actually searches for those kind of people. Do we feel any kind of obligation at all toward God or our fellow believers for mutual defense, and thus would prove willing to stand in the breach if the walls are breached? Would we, or would we, like so many others, despair and believe the time has come for every man for himself the moment those walls are breached? Will we prove willing to fight for one another in prayer, even when those people are compromised, and before God, to be faithful to covenant, to exhort him toward that covenant faithfulness. And so we've spent some time looking at this very interesting image of the one who stands in the breach. That it comes from a last-ditch attempt to maintain the integrity of a city's defense uh, once part of the wall that was broken down. We have seen how Moses stood in the breach for Israel. Yahweh was going to destroy Israel, but then relented. But we've seen how Yahweh searched for a man like that to stand in the breach in the days of Ezekiel and found no one. And Yahweh was going to destroy Israel and therefore did so. We recognize how Jesus is the ultimate man who stood in the breach, who is fully God and fully human, who offered himself for our sin to reconcile us to God, fully standing in that breach that was made by our sin. And so therefore we can hopefully see the imperative of having one who will stand in the breach among the people of God. A person who powerfully prays to God for the salvation of his people, to exhort him toward covenant loyalty, lest the wrath of God be poured out among his people. As we know uh, from 1 Peter 4, the judgment begins at the household of God. So may we prove willing, if necessary, to stand in the breach, loving God and loving our fellow man, to intercede before God that many may hear and be saved. Again, we're so glad that you've joined us today. If you've been benefited by this, we encourage you to please share it with friends, family, and others. Uh, if we can be of any service to you, maybe you have a prayer request, maybe you'd like to talk more about these kind of things, um, maybe you'd like to check out check us out. Uh, please find us online at VenturesChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on various forms of social media. If I can be of any service personally, please reach out to me through my website at DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. Uh, again, thank you. Have a great day.